morning, everyone. I definitely saved the applause. Um, <laughs> nice to see you all. Thank you for coming back, and welcome to uh, Wonder, um, our eighth medicine unboxed. Um, we're going to um, start the day, actually, with uh, an acclaimed, astonishing, uh, inspired, and award-winning author of eight books, including Under the Skin, uh, The Crimson Petal and the White, and A Book of Strange New Things, which is astonishing. Uh, welcome to the stage, Michelle Faber. How are you? I'm all right. Can, can I immediately riff on your theme of wonder, having just seen Ludwig dance? Yep. Um, it is Ludwig, isn't it? It is. Yes, right. Uh, one of the reasons I started with that first is that if I had waited longer than 30 seconds, I would have forgotten the name, because I forget everything. Um, when that dance began, you see a body, and you think, you're reminded that this is a mechanism that's sort of held together with wires, because it's all very awkward and mechanical. Mm. And then he starts moving mm. differently, and there's some sort of spirit that comes into it, mm. and something wondrous. Mm. And it's that division between us being bodies that are just bits of meat mm. held together with mm. sinew and so on, and whatever else we're able to do, mm. um, that I think is part of what wonder is. That's an interesting, I mean, so as a writer, um, is it fair to say that much, that wondering about that kind of thing, wondering about other persons, is central to your enterprise? Thinking about other human beings, particularly not just other human beings, but other life, but wondering about the world is what novelists do. Yes. Um, I mean, several people, including my wife, have observed that I'm curious about an enormous number of things, yep. but also not curious about a lot of things that other people are curious about. Yep. And I think that's one of the things that, that distinguishes authors. It, the interesting thing is recently, in the last few months, there's been a lot of um, news about this. Either writers um, wondering too much about things that oughtn't to be their province, you know, appropriating mm -hmm. other worldviews, or not wondering enough. Uh, you know, Jonathan Franzen getting into trouble because he famously said, well, I couldn't write about a black character mm -hmm. because I've never been in love with one. Right. Um, and I'm just interested in your view on this. It comes up every year at Medicine Unboxed. To what extent we can really identify with another person and how much you have to do that in order to write what you write? Um, I think the Franzen thing strays into another area entirely, mm -hmm. which is universality. Mm -hmm. The degree to which one needs to take an interest in the little lives of New Yorkers or whatever. Mm -hmm and whether a, a Norwegian or an Icelander could really relate to that. Mm. Um, and could they? Um, if they made a lot of effort. Um, I think one of the weird things about our culture is that people are willing to put a lot of energy, for example, into getting to grips with the street patois and the culture of inner American cities. Mm -hmm. Um, but they wouldn't be prepared to do so for northern Norway, or okay. maybe even Cheltenham. You know, the, there's this thing, there's a hierarchy. Because it's not hip? Because it's not hip. Okay. Um, and that's the sort of thing which, in 150 years from now, 
that whole landscape will be very different. And a lot of books that, that are considered incredibly um, gripping and interesting and important and universal now will be considered unreadable because people won't be prepared to put that sort of effort into researching the, the context. And other books which might not necessarily have been considered that universal will emerge. Well, let's, I mean, this is interesting. So we're talking about Norway and, Pat, you know, Patois and what's hip and to what extent people can identify with lives that aren't their own. You, of course, have written about alien life. Yes. Yeah? So the, 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 the leap of empathy there, if that's what it's reasonable to call it, is wider, considerably wider. Um, well, it's, it's an, maybe post-Brexit, it's not that much wider, but <laughs> to other you know, planets and life forms. Well, all my work is about alienation and mm. about bridging that gap mm. between us and the other, mm. whatever the other is. Mm. And in my work, um, I've had to, to find different ways of expressing that alien. Why, so why is that? When you say all your work's about that, why? What's interesting about that to you? Well, first of all, I don't actually want to write about a Dutch family who emigrated to Australia and there's domestic worries. I mean, it's fine when people want to write that sort, those sorts of novels. Um, that's not exotic enough for me. Okay. You know, I'm, I'm a Marvel Comics guy. I want okay. thrills. I want, mm. you know, I want an adventure. Mm. So there is the adventure of imagining myself into the place of a 19-year-old female prostitute in okay. 1875, mm. in The Crimson Petal and the White, or imagining myself into the place of aliens or people who are having things done to them by aliens. You know, it, it's, it's all different ways mm. of inhabiting the other mm. uh, in, a, in a narratively exotic way. So you clearly think that's a tenable thing to do. You must do. Yes. Well, your books actualize that possibility beautifully, so you must, it must be possible because you achieve it. Well, the, the challenge for me is to, is to create a narrative which is far-fetched in every sense of that word, but which, when the reader enters into it, feels so real, as if it's an unfolding in, in real time, in <laughs> real life, that they'll forget how exotic it is, and yes. they'll just settle in. And they'll see the human. Yes. Well, this in, so coming on to the human then, so in Under the Skin, your first book, yeah. um, Isoli, the, 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 the main protagonist of this, is an alien who, in fact, calls herself human. Sure. Yeah? But the humans that we recognize here are termed vodsels. Mm -hmm. And she's on this world to essentially um, steal their meat. Yes. Yeah? Um, for survival yes. of her species. There's a transformation that happens to her across the course of that novel. But I just wondered if it's all right. I just wondered if you'd mind, there's a piece within it where, in fact, the, 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 the um, kidnapped Vodzels yeah. she encounters now yes. um, with one of her colleagues as they are being turned into meat. And her, and Process, her, yeah, yes. yeah. Is, that, is that all right if you... If, if you give it to me, yes. Um. I, I luckily have it here. <laughs> <laughs> give it to me, Sam. <laughs> okay. Um, from where? There-ish. Right. Yeah. 
At the end of the walkway, the three most recent arrivals were on their feet, leaning against the wire mesh, waving and gesticulating. They cried. Amless Vess hastened to respond, his luxuriant tail swinging between his powerful silky buttocks as he ran. Isily followed, advancing slowly and cautiously. She hoped all the Vodsal's tongues had been thoroughly seen to. What Amless didn't know wouldn't hurt him. As soon as Isley had stepped within a body's length of the enclosure, she was frightened half to death by a large projectile hurtling against the wire from within, bulging the web of metal directly towards her with a juddering crash. For a nauseous moment, she was convinced the barrier had been penetrated, but the bulge sprang back and the Vodsal collapsed to the floor, howling in pain and fury. The inside of his gaping mouth was roasted black, where the stub of tongue had been cauterized. White spittle clung to his mustache. He struggled to his feet, clearly intending to lunge at Isily again, but two of the other Vodsals seized hold of him and dragged him back from the wire. Held down by a tall and athletic individual much younger than himself, the excitable Vodsal slumped impotently in his nest of straw, his knees jerking. The third creature scrambled forwards and fell to his knees on a patch of soil right near the white wire mesh. He stared down into it, grunting and snuffling in distress as if he'd lost something. It's all right, boy, encouraged Amless earnestly. Do it again. You can do it. I know you can. The Vodsal bent over the earth, erasing his wild companion's scuffed footprints from it with the edge of one hand. His empty scrotal sack, still speckled with dried blood from his gelding, swung back and forth as he smoothed the soil and picked fragments of scattered straw out of it. Then he gathered a handful of long straws together, twisted and folded them to make a stiff wand, and began to draw in the dirt. Look, Amlas urged. Isily watched, disturbed as the Vodsal scrawled a five-letter word with great deliberation, even going to the trouble of fashioning each letter upside down so that it would appear right way up for those on the other side of the mesh. No one told me they had a language, marveled Amlas, too impressed, it seemed, to be angry. My father always described them as vegetables on legs. <coughs> Depends on what you classify as language, I guess, said Isily dismissively. The Vodsal had slumped behind his handiwork, head bowed in submission, eyes wet and gleaming. But what does it mean? persisted Amlas. Isily considered the message, which was M-E-R-C-Y. It was a word she'd rarely encountered in her reading, and never on television. For an instant, she racked her brains for a translation, then realized that, by sheer chance, the word was untranslatable into her own tongue. It was a concept that just didn't exist. And then, of course, the alien life is encountered again in your most recent book, The Book of Strange New Things. And that, but now, it's some point in the future, different book, of course, different characters, and a Christian missionary, Peter, finds himself on another planet with a, a, you know, a population of alien life who he's bringing the word of Jesus to. Yes, the indigenous people. 
Is that what is that what it was that prompted it? This uh, sort of colonial, a Christian missionary colonialism. Well, um, of course, it's not a colony. Oh. It's it's a community. We do not call it a colony. Okay. Um, but yes, of course. And so, when he's there, all the time he's there, and it's important to say, and this you know, it's important to say this book was being written as Eva, your wife, was unwell. Yes. With myeloma, yeah. he's there, and Eva's at home, yeah. in a in a rapidly apocalyptic becoming planet, yeah. and that and that their communication is entirely through email, with this world that's fragmenting and weathering, mm-hmm. and becoming frightening, all too vividly realised in these emails. Just say something, if you could, about why that. What was, the, what was the reasoning behind um, bringing Jesus to the aliens? What was all that about? Um, well, I'd, I had a Christian upbringing and lost my faith when I was about 11. And unlike many smart people who lose their faith early on, I, I did go through a short phase of wanting to burn all the churches and feel that we should all become atheists and grow out of it. But um, I then became very interested in what faith does for people, what religion is for. Mm. And I, I realized in time that it is not going to go away. It mm-hmm. really doesn't matter how technologically advanced we get. It's going to be there, that need for someone up there who's taking care of us or who's interested. And the poignancy of that, if you don't actually believe that there's someone up there who's interested, uh, it's, it's heartbreaking and, and yet beautiful. And so much of the world's wonderful art has come about because of either that faith or that yearning for that faith. So I've been looking at that in so many different ways in, in my different books. And my favorite characters in The Crimson Petal and the White were um, Emmeline Fox and Henry Rackham, both very sincere Christians. Um, so yes, I'm, I'm interested in examining all that in a clear-eyed way, but without condescension or, or taking the piss out of it. But you wouldn't class yourself as a religious person? No. But, but Jesus, the character of Jesus, comes up again and again. Yes. So what, what draws you to that story or that person in your fiction, given that you're not religious? Well, I wrote a book which not a great many people have read called The Fire Gospel, and in that we have an alternative view of the, <laughs> um, of the crucifixion. And one of the, the amazing things about Jesus as a character is, is he's the ultimate, he becomes the ultimate meat. I mean, it's, it's such a clear illustration of the fact that we are a vulnerable body. You know, what happens to Jesus' body? And yet, invested in that frail and clearly sort of used by deity thing is, is all, meaning. all meaning and all the notions of who even created the universe. Mm. Mm. And that impossible paradox is, for me, very fruitful. I mean, um, and obviously for several other people, it has been very fruitful as well. <laughs> I mean, so to me, the fire gospel... Of all, of all your books mm. is the most moving and astonishing book. I am so glad you, s- you said that because a lot of people who, 
reviewed it felt that it was a, a satire on the publishing industry. Mm. And there's a lot of fun, you know, in it mm. about this, this guy who finds a fifth gospel and, and is incredibly egomaniacal and greedy in, in wanting to, to become famous, having discovered it. But for me, the heart of the book is, is the, the sadness of it, the poignancy of it. And the, but the overwhelming beauty and meaning, because the fifth gospel that's found presents things as they happened, ungloriously, mm -hmm. un, un but at heart, there's this message of love. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that, that this, was somehow, this was somehow achieved in a mortal um, you know, mm -hmm. what, being. Yeah. I, Do you have faith? Um, hmm, I'm not used to being asked questions. Uh, <laughs> I just wondered if we might go to a, um, a reading from, in fact, the uh, Bible, <laughs> where this is, so this is part of the actual gospel um, text here. Is that all right? I'm ducking yes. the question. Uh, all of you, as you see Sam through the rest of the day, just sort of, you know, prod him on this issue. <laughs> Eventually he will break. So this is from uh, the, um, the account of, of Malchus, the previously unknown eyewitness to, to the crucifixion. In the garden where I met him first, our beloved Jesus gave himself to be sacrificed. That was his supreme act of courage. I witnessed the maker of the world deliver himself to be unmade. Simon asks again and again, why was there no miracle? To which I say, how much more miraculous a miracle does Simon require than that the Lord of all creation takes mortal form and gives himself to be slaughtered? How strange it is that Simon was granted the privilege of daily companionship with Jesus, eating and walking and sitting with him and receiving into his ears, that is to say, into Simon's ears, all the wisdoms that Jesus spoke, and yet he understood nothing. Whereas I, who was in the presence of our Savior only twice and who possessed not even two whole ears to hear with, have understood everything, but no more of Simon. That's what you've underlined. Okay. <laughs> The, the, the thing that I wonder if, I, I just wonder if this is a real um, tricky ambivalence for you, because on the one hand you're not a religious man, yet there's this amazing um, literature about love and what love means and how it's actualized in the world, what the, what the force of perhaps art and the written word is, yet also, famously, you're um, ambivalent about what it can achieve. You know, we've got wars that rage. They mm -hmm. come up a lot in the book of Strange New Things. You wrote to Tony Blair and David Cameron pretty angrily about the Iraq and the Syrian mm -hmm. wars and worry that actually fiction finally, or art, maybe even religion, doesn't achieve sufficient good in the world. And I wonder if, like many of us, in fact, you're torn between these two um, hopes and possibilities. Sure. Is that sure. a fair thing to say? That's a fair thing to say. I, th I think many serious artists simultaneously love the human race and... Despise it. Despise it. Um, in terms of literature having an effect in the world, um, I think that's a kind of megalomania almost that, that uh, you know, a, a lovely positive megalomania that, that, that artists cherish from time to time. Um, I don't think art makes much of a difference, but it helps people through. It helps intelligent and 
soulful people through dispiriting times. And that doesn't seem much of an achievement compared to stopping a war, but um, it is probably enough to be getting on with. Because when someone who is intelligent and soulful is extremely dispirited about the state of the world, they're not going to be cheered up by superficial shit. You know, they're going to need something that's more but you nourishing. But you say that, and in the opening poem of Undying, although there is no God, let us not leave off praying, for words in solemn order may yet prove to be a charm. Now, mm -hmm. that charm, presumably, is more than a palliative. Is it not in well, some Well, in the context way? of that poem, it's, it's, it's the charm against illness, but <laughs> you're taking it in a, in a wider mm. way, words in or solemn order. Or wondering if it may have a wider way. Yeah. Um, um, we have, on the one hand, Donald, individuals such as Donald Trump, liberal with their playing fast and loose with language and with consequences that we know are evident and soon will be more evident, is not, is not the presentation of words with authenticity and integrity, with spirituality attached to them, an assertion, in a way, against that, an assertion of love, in fact. Um, I look at things... I mean, obviously, I live in the now, and I try to live in the now, but another part of me looks at things on a century-by-century -century basis. And um, 100 years from now, 150 years from now, if the human race is still around, many, many things that we're fussed about now will have long passed away or become vague. And people looking back will note that in 2016 there was such a thing as Donald Trump but they'll be very hazy as to who he was and what he did, because it'll all be so long ago. And there will still be works of art that they're looking at, and those things will be eternally present. And that is part of the wonder of art, and we can't second-guess what the art will be. And in all likelihood, my work will disappear, because almost all work does. But there will be some things still kicking around, and those things will still nourish the human spirit, when all these despots and scumbags have, you know, washed into the plug hole of history. <laughs> we talked a bit before about um, Eva's illness mm -hmm. and your encounters between you with the health profession. And we had this slightly, uh, this conversation that we both retreated from a bit, this idea of... Don't you hate it when people on stage say, we had this conversation before, you know, when we were backstage or in the restaurant, you know, and... <laughs> They, they obviously love it. Um, <laughs> the, you talked a bit about the, lo the love almost. Mm -hmm. It felt like an overstated word, I think, which is why I think we retreated from it, between a health professional and the patient mm -hmm. they care for, whether that's even something desirable, let alone tenable. I just wondered if you might say something about your and Eva's encounters with medicine. Um, hmm. Well, I could read one of the poems, but yeah, hardly love in there. That'd be great. It doesn't have to be love, it's fine. <laughs> um, this, um, this is, these poems were written after... Yeah, almost all of these poems are written after Eva died. Uh, two, just two of them were written um, when she was still alive. And may I just... It was, it was only a couple of years ago, wasn't it, that she died? She died in July 2014, yeah. yeah. Um, do you want me to... Well, there are two specific doctor poems. Do you no, want just one? You, you choose. You decide. It's fine. Um, this is when she was first diagnosed. Um, it's called 
indecipherable kappa. The best doctor in our area went into the woods one day and blew his head off. We were never told why he did it. His funeral was in a church and the papers were discreet. A ginger-haired bear of a man, all Scottish brawn and whiskers, he liked you. He liked you a lot. I think he was a little in love with you, as so many men were. There was a twinkle in his eye when he'd bare your thigh for the pethidine shot in those halcyon days when migraine was your big disease. I wish his rendezvous with you had pleased him even more. I wish his ardor had been more profound. I wish he'd stuck around to be the one who diagnosed you. I somehow doubt he would have sent you home from the local clinic clutching a scrap of paper scrawled with indecipherable kappa, immunoglobin, spelling error, and a tip to go to Google and explore what multiple myeloma meant. We followed that prescription to the letter, sick with terror. The words, as far as we could tell, meant death in agony and soon, which just goes to show it matters who one's doctor is on a given afternoon and that the best doctor in our area should perhaps have been on better medication. And this is another poem about a different doctor, a haematologist. It's called His Hands Were Shaking. His hands were shaking. The haematologist who lifted up your dress and took the sample from your spine. Also, he blinks too often. You want to tell him, look, this blinking isn't helping. Either close your eyes or keep them open. <laughs> it would be nice to think his tremble was distress at causing pain to one so beautiful and in her prime and not from drink. In time, when these appointments grow routine, you'll pray the secretarial roulette assigns you to a different member of the team. In time, the trembling blinker will retire, vanish unannounced and overnight, and you will never have to sit him down and say, hey, listen, I've been thinking about the shaking and the blinking, and maybe you and I are just not right for each other. <laughs> I think we may get some questions, is that all right? Um, yes. And could we, as we bring the house lights up, also bring the screen down, please, so we could look at some of Eva's um, work in the midst of the questions. Right. Questions for Michelle Faber. can't see actually. Any hands shout? Up, up the top. Thank oh, you. Yeah. Nope. Down, down the front here, please. Thank you. Good Lord, there's more up there. <laughs> there is. Just the microphone, if that's all right. Yeah. Um, so you're talking about... A bit closer to your mouth, please. Sorry. Um, so you're kind of talking about the performance that we had earlier and the form of the human body. So... Upon reading your work, you describe the 
I don't know how to pronounce the people, but the Vopsils, yes. No, um, the Oasins. Of oh, the Oasins, yeah. yes. Yeah. So, what kind of inspired you to their form? Because it's quite unique, and mm. yeah, I was just curious. Um, in that book, I wanted to work more instinctively. Um, I, in my previous work, I'd become more and more of a control freak, knowing what everything was there for. And I felt there was a danger that the books would become too neat. And I decided to let some things into the book of Strange New Things where I, I just didn't know why. And I had a vision, if you like, of what those faces looked like. And I didn't analyze what it meant. I just gave them those faces. And a completely separate language. Yeah, yeah. Is that fun, inventing another language? Uh, it, it, it was. Um, I mean, one of the things that, that both amuses and, and annoys me about a lot of science fiction narratives is that basically the aliens are human beings with sort of plastic bits stuck on. And they speak this kind of diplomatic language, like, you know, we welcome you to our planet. And, and um, I figure that if there is an alien life form, they will probably speak something that we just cannot <laughs> get to grips with, and I gave them that, yeah. Other questions? Just at the back, the middle, Tiffany Atkinson, thank you. Hi, um, I have a question about um, your poetry and, and what it is about poetry in particular, or why you turn to poetry to address um, the subjects that you did in that collection? Um, when, when Eva was about 10 days from death, she was already sort of sailing on the seas of morphine. Um, I was sitting at her bedside with her laptop and was just compelled to write a couple of poems about what was going on with her physically. Um, even if she had still been mentally alert, I don't think I would have chosen to read them out to her. It would have been too wrong, upsetting, whatever. But for some reason, I needed to express those things. And then once she died, all these other poems came to me. And um, I, I wrote for 25 years without submitting anything. I wrote novels and put them away in a drawer. So I, I don't have this expectation that everything I write should go out there. And if I had found that those poems just expressed, you know, got something off my chest, but were not necessarily useful to other people, I would have just said, well, they did something for me, fine. Nobody else needs to see these. But I got the impression, reading them out at literary festivals, that they were speaking to people. So I, I put them out. Got a couple of questions at the top. Thank you. Thank you for that. That was really great. I loved your loved your last couple of books. Um, what are you working on now? What do you you know? And could you give, put that in sort of maybe a perspective? Because obviously it's, it's building on what you've already done. You presumably don't repeat. Well, and, and how do you evolve? One of the things that really upset Eva just before she got ill is that I had said that The Book of Strange New Things would be my last novel. She really didn't want me to stop writing novels. But I felt I'd said everything that I needed or wished to say. 
uh, or that at least once I finished the Book of Strange New Things, I would have finished. Um, now, there are various things I want to do. I mean, there's, there's images up there uh, which she made in the years of her illness, which I think are powerful. Um, I'd like to get them out there in some way, perhaps through an exhibition or a book with writings about those images. Uh, she wrote a lot. Um, there's a lot of unfinished stories, which I would like to finish. I've finished four of them so far, so they are like a genetic fusion of her and me. And if I manage to finish the others, there will one day be a book of short stories by Eva and Michelle Faber. Um, I want to write a non-fiction book about music. Um, and currently, I'm writing a book for children, um, or YAs, as they call them these days. Uh, and that book, um, you've read my books. You know that they go into the heart of darkness. And I think that's appropriate for grown-ups. There's a lot of children's fiction nowadays which is taking children into the heart of darkness, which is looking at self-harm, sexual abuse, uh, bullying, etc. And it's fine that there's authors who are covering that. I don't want to do it myself. I want to take my younger readers on a magical adventure. You know, I want to take them to Narnia, basically. And um, I just, I, I want to give them something inspirational and fun and exotic. And that is my next project. Wondrous, something wondrous. Something wondrous, indeed. Yeah. Final that question. is not a cheesy threading into the theme. That is, <laughs> uh, that is absolutely appropriate. Spontaneous, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, last question from the top. Um, oh, did microphone's on. Can you? Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, watching someone die, particularly young, is profoundly upsetting. And then originally we were talking about whether we can understand other um, people's lives, other cultures. And I'm just wondering whether um, your experience and sadness would be similar to, say, an African woman who was watching her third child die of malaria, for example. Do, so can we sort of um, understand other people's experiences, even if we don't live their lives? I think when people fret about can we understand an African woman whose third child is dying of malaria, or can Jonathan Franson do a black character who's never fallen in love with them, blah, blah, blah. If, if we truly knew how separated, how alienated we are from each other, if you knew how the extent to which you live on a different planet from the person next to you, if we really knew that the details, the specificity of what separates us from others, it would blow our little brains apart. It's because we you know, we innocently don't know and we assume that we have more in common with others. That allows us to do the things with each other that, that we do. Um, and I think one of the amazing things about human, one of the tragic and yet also gorgeous things about human beings is, is that despite all of us living on these different planets, different universes, we still manage to, to simulate or even kind of, sort of, kind of manage an understanding of each other which allows us to get good things done. Um, and it's a you know, glass half full, half empty thing. You can either 
focus on the failures of that, the, the, the shortcomings of that, or you can focus on, wow, you know, something actually happened <laughs> between these two or these two brilliant, I incredibly alien creatures. Mm. That the connection exists at all yes. is to yes. be treasured and Well, it's, it's like that Frank Zappa thing where, where he said, you know, getting an orchestra, getting, you know, 60 people to play anything together is, is just completely miraculous, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. That's brilliant. That's, a, I think, a perfect place to end yeah. that session. Thank you so much, Michelle Fabian. Thank you. Thank you.